Hello, we're back with episode 32 of the Feed the Ball podcast. This is Derek Duncan. I'm speaking today with architect Richard Mandel. Golf course architecture is a pretty small profession. Inside of it, though, there's a surprising amount of room. Architects who don't have nationally known practices can nevertheless build careers and reputations by developing areas of specialty and teaming with smart regional clients who value those skills. Richard Mandel may not be a household name, but he's operated his own business for over 25 years, and for the last 10, he's been overflowing with work. Based out of Pinehurst, he's had eight or nine different projects going on this year alone, ranging from Florida to Minnesota. Mandel is a renovation and restoration specialist with particular expertise in Donald Ross designs. He's designed new courses in places from Georgia to China. He's a golf course historian. He has a background in civil engineering. He's a certified arborist. He's taught fully accredited classes on golf architecture at North Carolina State, and he's written a book, really two books, one a heavily updated version of the first, on the history and development of Pinehurst. He's also a passionate advocate for economy and efficiency, for affordability in both the manufacturing and consumer end of design. As such, he has a lot to say about the current state of golf course construction and how he's been able to make a career out of saving clients money and delivering premium work for a fraction of what many architects and firms charge. I love talking to on-the-ground guys like Richard. He's a straight shooter who isn't shy about sharing an opinion. In this episode, we get into topics ranging from the Pinehurst Sandhills area to classical restoration to his thoughts on the current state of golf design and the people who practice it. Whether you know him well or you don't at all, I believe you'll get a lot out of this discussion. So here we are, me and Richard Mandel, just talking. Sunday, I actually wanted to watch Tiger, see if he could close the deal at East Lake. So that kind of uh, took up my afternoon as well. Did you watch any of that? No, we were driving back from Atlanta. We drove right by East Lake and said to the kids, you guys want to go? And uh, they said if we didn't live seven hours away, we'd go. But, you know, my younger son would have loved to have gone Saturday, but we, we couldn't really because we had basketball that basketball camp my older son was at. So we drove, drove right by, but I listened to it on the radio. Yeah. I haven't actually had a chance to see the highlights yet, though. It was, it was crazy. Just they, they had some sort of overhead shots of all the people who were following Tiger once he kind of hit his into 18 and it was clear that he was going to win. The mobs, I mean, I've never seen anything like it on a golf course. Just there were thousands of people walking up behind him on the 18th fairway. It was, it was not like any kind of golf scene. Like the British Open used to be, I guess. Like the British Open, but with twice as many people and just the, the cheers and the yells and the volume. Um, it was really a spectacle. How old are you, your kids? Do you have one or two? I have two, um, 10 and 14. And it was the oldest one at the camp? The oldest one at the camp. The younger one, though, plays basketball, too. That's our primary sport in our family is basketball. And I coach... I, I coach more than I play. I mean, how I coach more games in a weekend than I've played golf in the last two years. So, did you play basketball growing up? I did not. No, I did not. But uh, I've, you know, over the years, I, you know, I actually I managed the, the my high school bass. I was the manager for my high school basketball team, and by my senior year, I could beat a couple of the kids on the team, but the coach would never let me play because I was, I guess, too valuable doing everything else but I knew nothing about basketball and when I was a freshman 
he said, Hey, he was new. And he said, how about being my manager? I'm like, well, what's that? And he said, he told me, and I said, okay, you know, do the book and just almost like being a trainer too. And really the first, I mean, I was a hockey fan growing up. So I watched hockey, but didn't really play it and played street hockey, but um, never really watched much basketball. And so really the first full basketball game I saw from start to finish. I was the official scorekeeper on. <laughs> so I learned a bunch though, and it's still in my head. So when we moved into it, we moved into a house that had a basketball hoop and uh, it just sort of went from there, I guess. Where did you grow up? Uh, Rye, New York, Westchester County. Okay. So that, that explains the hockey. Yeah. Yeah. I was a Flyers fan in the, in the hall, in the town where the New York Rangers practiced on a regular basis. So, but that was back when the when the Flyers were were dominant, right? Was dominant, but not dominant enough to actually win a Stanley Cup. Dominant enough to be the first, the best, most points in the league almost every year, and then get bounced by the Rangers in the first round when they were the one seed and the Rangers were the eight seed. Yeah, I used to, I used to hit, knock down four irons into John Van Beesbrook's backyard all the time at Rye Golf Club. Cool. <laughs> and, <laughs> We haven't started taping yet, have we? <laughs> we're, we're rolling now. I might leave that's this fine. in. This is good stuff. As long as the beezer doesn't call me. Uh, he'll be like, that's the guy. I've been looking for him for 30 years. <laughs> that's right. That's right. As long as the right golf club. Yeah. I, I grew up in Colorado, but then we had a hockey team there, the Colorado Rockies, and they moved to New Jersey and became the Devils in, I don't know, the sometime in the 1980s, I think. Yeah. I was actually a New York Islander fan, and that was when they, I think they won four straight Stanley Cups, like in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, but my mom, my mom worked with a lady whose sister, I guess, was married to Bob Nystrom, who is a big, uh, you know, pretty well-known player on the Islanders, and I got his autograph somehow, and that, that's why I became an Islanders fan, and it was a good time to, to root for that team. They haven't well, been very good since. Yeah, when Bobby Nystrom scored the game-winning goal and gained six of the, the, their first Stanley Cup to beat the Flyers, I became a Bobby Nystrom enemy. There you go. Yeah, well, <laughs> so actually, I straight. understand. I didn't have a problem with the Islanders. I mean, the Islanders were good. They deserved to win Stanley Cups. It was the Rangers. They were a bunch of punks. We are rolling now, right, I hope. Yeah. The Rangers were a bunch of punks, and they stunk in the regular season. They kept upsetting the Flyers, which, of course, is really the Flyers' fault. Anyway, but yeah, Bobby Nystrom started that whole thing. I remember breakaway goal. I remember like it was yesterday. I remember like it was 1980. Damn, <laughs> sorry to bring that up, Richard. <laughs> That's okay. Hopefully, we'll go up good. We'll get better from here. Yeah. Okay. Well, you you're grew up bring, in. You know, I'm a Georgia Bulldog. You're not going to bring up the the championship. You're not going to bring up Tua, are you? Yeah, we're going to get there. All right. Good. He's going <laughs> down this well, year. Before we jump to Georgia, you grew up in in around right in right. You said there's a lot of uh, incredible golf in that area, you know, just within a few miles of that. How much access to those clubs did you have growing up? Um, well, played junior golf tournaments, played interclub matches as well. I was just telling my son last night a story about interclub because we, um, our interclub division was Rye Golf Club, and we were like the bad news bears. Rye Golf Club, Apawamis, Westchester, and and uh, Wingfoot, and so. The year, the, the, the years that we, the one year, I guess we did it a couple of years, but the, the both years we did it, the first year we did fine. Wingfoot had won 19 years in a row, and the second year we won the division. So it's really like a bad news bears. I mean, 
the night before matches, I'd scramble to find a fifth or sixth player, and we'd all load up. I'll never forget one one match we played at Pelham Country Club, and we had to go. I got an old Chevy Monza wagon. We'd all pile into that, you know, be happy for the meal more than the golf sometimes. And we had to run the toll booth on the New York State Thruway to get back to Rock because we didn't have 50 cents among the five of us in the car. <laughs> so, um, so I got to play Wingfoot, got to play Westchester on a regular basis, and Apawamis. Uh, I mean, my f- Sleepy Hollow, long, you know, before anyone had done anything to Sleepy Hollow, Waikagil, Tamarack. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on. And that's why I'm a golf course architect today, is all those great golf courses. Um, that I got to play on, like Ardsley Country Club, which is a very quirky golf course where you tee off the par four first hole with an eight iron, and then you tee off the second hole, par three, with a driver as a par, you know, as a par three. Um, and uh, just to me, the best golf courses in the world, with the exception, I guess, of the British Isles. I mean, actually, you know, you got to say that the are in Westchester County, New York, or the New York metropolitan area, because we used to play Beth Page summers in college on Mondays. Um, before Reese Jones did what he did. And even then, it was my my favorite golf course for the longest time. Um, yeah, the list just goes on and on and on. Did you know that these were you know, some of the greatest courses in America at that time? Or, is, or was it just the environment that you grew up in and you just took it for granted because that's what they were? I didn't necessarily – I don't think I took it for granted because I, I appreciated them and I, and I really – was very reverential. And when I was 15 years old, 10th grade, I decided I was going to be a golf course architect. Um, I didn't really ever play anywhere else. Most of my high school career, you know, I went to Florida and played there every now and then, you know, a couple times, not every now and then, but really that was it. So I was, I guess, sheltered if you want to say it, but, but I knew these were fantastic golf courses. And as you start reading about golf course architecture, you know, everything you read, sort of uh backs that up back then in the in the mid to late 80s you know mid mid to early 80s when i went to high school i graduated from high school in 1986 so um as early as 1984 my plan was to be a golf course architect so um i can't you know we watched the masters on tv like everybody i used to love and i still do love watching the u.s open and all that um so i had an inkling that they were all special uh you know in a big picture sort of way. But I don't think I ever, I certainly wasn't in the dark about it. You know, I, I, I don't think I ever took it for granted though. Yeah. Have you been up since, you know, in the last 20 years or so and been able to go back to a lot of those places? You know, it's funny. I, um, my very first project ever was a little 150 yard practice area at a place called the Millbrook Club in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is a nine-hole golf course. And I did another, I started, I did a renovation in a place called, it's called the Sanctuary. I think it's shuttered now. Uh, For a Chinese guy, um, I did a course called the Sanctuary, which was originally called uh, Lock Ledge in Yorktown Heights, New York. And um, he did his stuff in-house and we could never really get over the hump with what he was trying to do because he would constantly do stuff in the face of permitting. And there was this constant warfare between him and the town. Um, and so professionally, those are the only things I've ever done up there. And I've hardly bid on anything up there as well. Maybe one or two other things have I even looked at. 
which is, you know, unfortunate, disappointing for me, mostly, mostly because I've just been so busy elsewhere. But at this point in my career, I'd love to get back and do a lot of work there. We're just, I guess I should say fortunate that we're working nationwide everywhere else that we're not, you know, that we just can't seem to focus on that. Now, on the flip side, people look at me and say, well, here's some guy from North Carolina. But the fact is, I'm Westchester County born and bred and know those courses. I'll tell you a funny story. Well, funny might not be the right word, um, but I forget what course it was. It was, a, it was a golf course in East Chester, New York, maybe, in Westchester County that I went up and interviewed with. And it was an old Tillinghast course, and a lot of other people had touched it since. You know, your typical you know, list of, of, of architects over the years that come in every 10 years and redo stuff, you know, um, Frank Duane, Robert Trent Jones, et cetera, et cetera. And I lost it to another firm, lost that product to another firm. And I, you know, and they, and the, the superintendent pulled me, said to me, the reason they like this firm is because they came up prior to their interview and walked Quaker Ridge and Wingfoot and really studied what Tillinghouse was all about. I was like, come on, I could tell you exactly. I don't need to do that. I can tell you exactly how Tillinghast was. I can tell you exactly how those golf courses are. I don't need to come up and learn about your golf course architect ahead of time. You know, I just thought it was a cop out answer. And it probably was mostly because I was, you know, I was only my mid, mid twenties at the time. It's kind of young, but, uh, you know, that's sort of frustrating. So that, that sort of stuff happens a lot that, you know, you, people make the effort to get up to speed and the effort to get up to speed gets recognized more so than the fact that the other guy's up to speed already doesn't need to make the effort to be up to speed. Yeah, you had the built-in knowledge and they, they boned up for the test yeah. and you had the answers already. Yeah. The reason I asked that if you've been back yeah. is because so much work has been done to most of those golf courses since you were playing them in the you look in the early '80s, and I was wondering if you would you know if you'd even recognize some of these places. You mentioned Sleepy Hollow, and you know that's undergone a great transformation over the last few years, and you know Wingfoot's tinkered a little bit, but all the, most of those old golf courses had, you know had been probably when you were playing really not. Sh- Yeah, but they were authentic, you know, because restoration work really didn't start until the 90s. You know, I mean, the country club with with Reese Jones for the 89 Open was really the first course that people started talking about restoration or putting it back to what it was. You know, when I was a kid up there, everything was, you know, you'd have you'd have 14 styles and Van Cleek holes and four Robert Trent Jones holes, you know, things like that. Um I remember I went after the Round Hill Club once, long, you know, really, really out of the gate early in Greenwich. That was a Walter Travis course, and um, I didn't get the job. And they, they in, in the same one fell swoop, they said, we want to restore, this is by 94 maybe, we want to restore Walter Travis to this golf course, and we, wanna, and we also want a pretty detailed tree planting plan. And my response was, well, no tree planting plan. If you want Walter Travis, you need to start taking trees out. And that might be why I didn't get the job. Of course, nowadays, it's brilliant to come out and take trees. But, you know, not everyone was receptive to that, you know, back in the early to mid-90s. And when I would propose, you got to take trees out, you'd always would get resistance, always. Um, 
So From what I, uh, I, I haven't seen, I'm sorry, I haven't seen many of the courses up there because I just haven't been up there as much, but I did go play Rye Golf Club and it's somewhat still intact from what I remember, even though there are two Reese Jones holes there, which are pretty cool though. Um, I worked at Bedford Golf and Tennis Club in college for two summers and that was actually redone a little bit to its detriment. One of the things I loved about that, both Rye and Bedford are um, Devereaux Emmy courses. One thing I love to this day are really sort of pre-golden age approaches where just the fairway is flat and it just dives flat right into a, the flat front of a putting green. I just think this is kind of cool and lost that a little bit at Bedford and elsewhere. Mentioning trees, uh, I'm under the impression that it's still quite a task to get memberships on board when they have an old golf course to remove trees. Is that your experience? I mean, I'm sure they've come a long way since the 90s, but people still love trees. Yeah, as far as people, you know, as far as industry people and the people in, in, in spots of authority like Greens chairman and presidents, they're on board more. But the average member will have them fit. You know, um, I'm a, I happen to be a certified arborist, so it helps to justify tree removal because we can find arboricultural reasons why trees need to be removed and so you know uh, of the hundred percent of the trees like say there are a thousand trees we want to remove from a golf course we can literally find legitimate issues with 65 percent of them or 60 percent of them from an arboricultural standpoint you know that have um pending issues that are gonna uh create risk management issues and then there's another 20 percent of those trees that people clearly say if they don't have issues, it's at least it's a shade issue. And people understand we play golf on grass and not trees. And then that always leaves the last five or 10% of the trees where we want to take them out purely for architectural purposes or strategic purposes. And so we're pretty successful with that in that regard. So um, some trees we may not get out, but for the most part, it's, it's, we've got a good system, at least RMGA, on how to approach that. Did you become an arborist for your business because you saw that would be a utility or do you love learning about trees? Oh, I love trees that are taken off golf courses. Um, I, you know, uh, <laughs> Chopped up trees. Yeah, uh, I love fires. You know, it gets chilly in Pioneers every now and then. So I've been working for Army and Navy Country Club in Washington, D.C. for at least 15 years now. And... We did a major bunker renovation um, at, at all 54 holes, and they have 27 holes in Arlington and 27 holes in Fairfax. And um, frankly, we were at a at a meeting with the uh, city of Fairfax commissioners talking about trees, and one of the commissioners asked me if I was an arborist. And I said, no, I'm not, but I'm a licensed landscape architect, and da-da-da-da-da-da, I know trees. He's like, but he's like, well, but you're not a certified arborist are you i said no sir i'm not so <laughs> went back to the office and the next day and figured out how to become a certified arborist so the next time one of those yahoos says that i can say yeah pal i'm a certified arborist that's right you're not going to get caught on the courtroom situation answer the question are you or not that's right that's right yeah it's an iron side so I'm, a, I'm an arborist now well how long did that take was that a difficult thing to to do or to become um, uh, it, it took a lot of study and, uh, it takes now, you know, continuing education. So you have to stay on top of it. 
um, on a on a annual basis. Right. Uh, you mentioned Bethpage a little a few minutes ago. What do you remember about that course that was different when you played it versus what we all see now? You know, after the two thousand one Open and beyond. What I saw was a fantastic piece of property at a fantastic routing of a golf course. And I saw bunkers that were in horrible shape and weren't very aesthetically pleasing, but were in really cool strategic locations. And so what Reese and his guys did was polish that puppy up. And I think the bunkering's really cool out there. Um, so that's what I saw. I didn't see crazy greens, comp, you know, putting services or anything like that, but you didn't need crazy putting services. You know, if you had some really wild undulating greens out there, nobody would ever finish the round. Even back then, it was a five or six hour round. I mean, we would leave Monday mornings. We would meet in the parking lot at, Beth, at Bedford Golf and Tennis Club in Bedford, New York, and we'd drive four hours in traffic. You know, it's not four hours, but you'd be sitting in rush hour traffic from Westchester to Long Island. And then you'd sit around for another three hours to get out on the course. And then it'd be a six hour round. And when you cross the street to play 15 through 18, you're usually a six or eight some at that point just to speed play up. And you lost 10 balls and shot 10 strokes over your, your average score, but loved every minute of it. Even back then. Really? <laughs> it doesn't sound that enjoyable. And well, that's just a testament to such a great routing. Yeah. See what a routing, a great routing can do to a person. I, I suppose, yeah. I mean, uh, but although if you're losing <laughs> golf balls and playing as an eight, so I think that would take precedence over your observations of how great the holes laid on the land. Well, but that's yeah. Just I mean, me. <laughs> but, right. But it wasn't because it was a horrible routing and they were all blind holes and it was all narrow and all. It was just, well, there was just, it was in poor shape and there was a lot of rough and, and you were playing with, you know, there are a lot of people out there. That's what it was, it was like six-minute tee time. So it really wasn't that the golf course was so difficult. I mean, it wasn't easy. And they even had a sign. I don't know if the sign's still there, but back then they had a sign that said, if you don't have a 10 handicap, maybe you should go play the red course. You know, not in those words. Basically but, warning you, you this is going to kick your ass. Yeah, warning. Think about, think about it first. That's right. Yeah, there is that um, sign there. Do you, is, is that course as good as it could be? Are, were you a, I'll just ask you, are you a fan of the, the work that Reese did there? I, I like what Reese did, but I hate what the USGA did. We, uh, I don't know how long ago it's been, but the ASGCA, the Australian Golf Architects, and the European Institute of Golf Course Architects all had sort of a get-together for four, to play four rounds of golf in Westchester County about six or six or seven years ago. And we played Beth Page Black. We played National Golf Links. We played Maidstone. We played Baldessarol Lower. And so I played Beth Page Black about, I think, right before the 2001 Open or maybe right after. I think it was before the 2001 Open, right after what Reese did. And I liked it because, to me, it was routing more than anything. And I thought the bunkering was still good. Um, but it was slowly being converted into a USGA behemoth. And then we played in this thing about seven years ago. And I remember it was a shot and start. We teed off on 11. And I think we got to 13 green. And this Australian golf course architect female, she said, well, Rich, what, what's your favorite golf course? I said, well, up until about three holes ago, it was Beth Page Black. And <laughs> it, it, it's, it's horrible now because of setup. And all that great bunkering has 30, you know, 15 to 25 yards of rough between it and the fairway. And so – 
why not just fill all the bunkers in? You know, and you can mow more effectively that rough every month when you want to. So I don't think it's as good as it can be because it's been bastardized for the U.S. Open. And do you think that, I guess it's the park system who owns that, you know, the state owns it, but whoever operates the course is that, are they just reluctant to get away from this, uh, the U.S. Open identity because so many, you know, that's where they make their money probably on visiting players and that's what they want to see because they could easily yeah, exactly. change that. Right. It's a, it's, it's something that, you know, people, they, they charge a lot of money. I don't know what it is now, but they charge a lot of money for out of state. If you're not a New York state resident and people will come because they saw it on TV, you know, and so they set it up for the U S open, you know, they, they keep that up. That's the identity of the golf course. And a lot of courses are, I mean, Pinders number two is like that. That was their story was, well, everybody wants to play it like it is in the U S open. Well, obviously they discovered that that wasn't really the best route, you know? And so Beth page can easily just adjust their rough and still have, you know, and then when time for the next, I guess there's a Ryder cup coming, I think soon there, they can adjust easily with rough. Whereas number two is another story, but um, definitely because of that, that's why that the park system does what it does. It's all. I mean, it it would it would be an easy lawnmower fix. It's that it would be. Yeah, it costs nothing. Right, right, and that's what they do, and that's coming from a guy who's never spoken to any of them. But I'm just guessing, you know. We could do a lot of good in public golf with lawnmowers alone. Yeah, you can. You can do. A I lot mean, you of just go to your go to so many just average public or municipal courses around the country, and just kind of look at the way they're set up, just with with grass, just grass alone. You could improve the quality of play and probably quicken rounds, and just kind of introduce a more fun golf course just by kind of widening everything out and thinking smarter about how long the grass is around the greens and that kind of thing. Absolutely. And you could do that at private clubs too. I mean, we've got private work, we've got public work and it's the same. My, uh, I've got the same approach, really. It's the same story. And we've been doing it for years, widening fairways for a long time, you know, for 10, 15 years, we've been looking and coming widening fairways, mostly to enhance the, the visual of the great topography, you know, narrow fairways, you know, 25 yard wide strips of low grass hides a lot of great topography. Um, and also there's the, the, the hazard issue, you know, it's nothing but penalty and all the strategic hazards are eliminated in many cases, even when you widen fairways, but they're straight and you bring the fairway to the bunker edge. A lot of those bunkers are still penal because the fairways are straight. And if you miss the fairway, you're either in rough or sand. Whereas, one of the things that, you know, I'm a broken record when it comes to grassing when we do renovations and restorations is bring the fairway, you know, I like to bring the fairway up to the, the far edge, the outside edge of a bunker and pull it tight around the bunker and then come behind the bunker and bring it back out to that far outside edge and then start bringing it back in towards the center line a little bit more because now you've introduced a strategic hazard. In other words, there, there's a bunker, there's an advantage. You know, the bunker's there to challenge the golfer. And so you should reward a golfer. If a golfer hits it over a bunker, they should hit that fairway and, and kick further and gain an advantage. I mean, that's, you know, my my bumper sticker philosophy is a hazard should challenge the golfer and not penalize the golfer. And that's, a, that's the exact way to do it. And even on the flip side, you know, if you if it's a bunker that you can't carry, but maybe 
playing as close to that bunker as possible is the preferred route. And that's a strategy. And that's a whole, that's a completely legitimate and, and, and strong strategy. Well, if you hit it a little too far, trying to get as close as possible for the maximum reward and it rolls into the bunker, there's your penalty. So it works both ways. When you were getting into the uh, the business, when you were first getting in, I guess it was probably the early 1990s. I was I pers- I don't I don't think I was really paying attention to these kind of conversations then. Were they happening? I because right now I feel like we've gotten to, we're getting to a point where there are a lot of people in the industry, there are a lot of participants, golfers in the industry who are hearing things that you just said about grass lines and and how bunkers are real hazards and and how width is important. And you can have this conversation in a lot of different places. I'm not sure that conversation existed on the scale that it did in the 1990s. Uh, have you felt that we've there's been a, a, a slow mass education uh, throughout golf about these kind of strategic concepts, or do we still have a, a big hill to climb? Well, industry-wise, and our small group of golf architecture fans, so to speak, you know, we're there, but the golfer off the street, we've got a long way to go, you know? So there weren't those conversations even industry-wide back then. And I was just, I felt like I was just knocking my head against the, against the wall with those ideas. And partially because I was so young, nobody, you know, there were people that were in the business for 20, 30, 40 years who may have, you know, who did it a certain way and the industry did it that certain way. But it's like when you're on the highway and, and you're on an exit ramp and there's a hundred cars on the right lane and there's not one on the left lane, take the left lane, take the road less traveled, I guess. And the road less traveled back then was where we are today, strategically. So now today though, we have, we still have a long way to go. When you go to a golf course, and you start talking to a membership about their golf course, what they typically have are narrow fairway, narrow tree line fairways, and it's all about target golf and it's all about penalty. You know, for years, hey, Joe cuts the corner all the time on the fourth hole, but we're gonna plant some trees there to keep him from doing that. We're <laughs> gonna keep we're gonna put things out there to keep you from gaining an advantage, to make it more and more difficult for you to get from point A to point B. And that started way back in the 50s and continued and, and to a certain extent still continues a little bit today, but not as much. But now, and now we're moving away from that. So but but there are a lot of clubs like we're working right now at a place, um, an old Tom Bendelow golf course up in Ohio. And uh, they were tree lined, really narrow fairways. And it's been a complete re-education there of how to approach things and it's been dicey it's been tough to show them hey your greens are really small and there are maintenance issues with them there are drainage issues with them i mean there's a portfolio in the late 60s that said you need to rebuild your greens and they never did they still haven't um but now we're wanting we you know we showed them through common sense through our renovation business plan process and uh through common sense this is what fun is all about and now I hear everyone talking about fun and enjoyment, but that wasn't the case even five years ago. Nobody was talking fun and enjoyment. You know, um, we were busy and, and, and promoting that. And now people see it's not all about difficulty, but it's a major re-education that we have a long way to go with. 
So from your point of view, do you think a lot of that is just inertia, the, the resistance or, or the, the concept that a golf course, you know, should have narrow fairways and trees down the sides? Is it hard to break out of that, that mindset just because there's so much inertia behind it? It's just a, a traditional way to look at golf courses for the average American golfer, or does what they see on television hinder the the uh, the idea that there could be golf presented in a in a different bigger more enjoyable way well it is inertia and it's it's fomented by what people see on tv or saw on tv now in the last five six years we've seen a change on tv even you know we've even seen fairways that are brown and greens that are patchwork of different shades versus perfect conditions but that's where we went. You know, there are two things. Laziness and television changed golf course architecture in America for the worse, starting in the 40s, 50s, 60s. So, so um, what do you mean by laziness? Television, because people watched PGA Tour and they watched the Masters. And when color showed up, everybody wanted perfect conditions. Laziness in the sense that Laziness and cost. I don't want to say, I shouldn't say laziness. That's, 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 that's a little rough, but cost, you know, a 50 yard wide fairway needs to be, it takes a lot more effort to mow than a 25 yard wide fairway. And you're mowing more often. Um, bunkers that have grass sand on their faces require more work than grass on their faces and, and greens that are 7,000 square feet are take a lot more effort to maintain than greens that are 4,000 square feet. And so I sort of talked laziness a little bit with guys on mowers just will mow a little less, you know, and that's why greens get smaller. And that's why fairways got narrower to a certain extent. And then the difficulty thing that people saw on TV, that that was the way golf was supposed to be challenge for best golfers. Well, Hey, you're not that good. So it, it, it's, it's really a big circle. And I'm afraid to say 75 years, we might be back to where we're trying to get out of right now. Um, there's, you know, there's costs, there's, there's required maintenance increase to budgets purely for mowing if you're going to increase wide fairways. I think it's, it's much – that's the best value you can have, but there's resistance there as well. So, I mean, I, I've always thought – I've been thinking, I should say, I've been thinking that the great hope for, for golf is – and you could take this however you want, you know – Maybe you think you know golf is fine the way it is, and and it, nothing needs to change, and that's that's okay. But if golf is going to continue to be a great game going forward, I think the great hope is in public courses that are being renovated, not restored, but renovated, taking an, an existing property and reimagining it in a way that is makes rounds quicker, more enjoyable. Uh, simpler, just kind of strip everything that is not there away, make them more strategic, of course, make them shorter, probably. And that idea, I think, it has the ability to attract new players to the game or to get to get people who, are, who already play it, get them around quicker and more enjoyable. But I'm not sure that that idea has much of a chance of taking off at the public and municipal level. What do you see in that regard of, of changing ideas and specifically through what the kind of projects that you've been involved in, what's, is that, is there a real hope there that we can turn a corner and convert some of these older properties into really fun, dynamic, short, quick, accessible golf courses? 
Absolutely. I mean, we, we're knee-deep in that right now. We've done a lot of public municipal work in the last decade. And the conversations I've had with private memberships are the same as I do with public golfers. And when we go to a public golf course, we start, we walk the course with everybody. We've been doing that for years and say, you tell us, what do you think about this and that? And, and they're, they're kind of anxious to hear what I have to say, but I want to hear what they have to say. And all of their issues, you know, would be if we resolve all their issues, we're where you want to go, where I want to go and where golf needs to go. So I have complete faith that that will happen. And, you know, we've done that, at, uh, you know, Keller Golf Course up in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota or uh, Maplewood, technically, where narrow fairways, you know, now they're wide fairways. We have central hazards um, on, on numerous holes out there. Other ha- you know, hazards that cross the center line, you know, um, and it still has the same character that the old Keller had. It even still has the same sort of pre-Golden Age styling as well. We tried to, we completely rebuilt that course from top to bottom, and uh, we were able to achieve that. And it's been well received. It, it, it's shorter on some places and it's longer in other places, you know. We sort of shuffle the deck when it comes to tee locations and all that, um, trying to create what I call tee shot distance equity. And that basically is, you know, traditionally it used to be everybody sets their, sets their tees up, you know, architecturally, construction-wise, so that everyone gets to the same spot in the fairway and you're starts away. Well, there's no equity there because everyone in your foursome might be hitting a different club. They might not be hitting a seven or eight iron you know, from 150 yards. So there's not much equity. We sort of look at it the other way. We're going to set tees up so that everyone goes to a different spot in the fairway, their own landing area. But from that landing area, they're typically hitting a seven iron. So um, what that ends up happening with a reshuffling is some, you know, the 6,500 yards, yard tees maybe still be at 6,500 yards but five holes got shorter and four holes got longer. You know, usually we'll find a gap and add a whole new set of tees. You know, in order to really have true tee shot distance equity, each set of tees has to be about 350 yards difference, 300, 350 yard difference. So in other words, if you start at 45, you need to go, the next one's going to be 48, 50, then 52, uh, 56, you know, 59, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And if the back tees happen to be 7,000 yards, you really could make a good case for having eight sets, seven, eight sets of tees in order to create equity for everyone. Now that's a hard sell though, because frankly, there's not a lot of room on a scorecard to do that. Uh, And it's a bit overwhelming for management for whatever reason. And it's just because it's, you know, we went traditionally, traditionally, and I'm going to call it traditionally 20 years ago, just had three sets of tees. Now, now we're up to, up to five is common, sometimes six, but to go to seven is a stretch. But if you really wanted to create tee shot distance equity from the forward tees to the back tees, you really need six, seven, eight sets of tees to do that. So there's some gaps that we leave because we don't have the support of or the construction budget to do so, or even the space to do something like that. And so whatever set of tees gets left out is usually the demographic a demographic that can be served forward or back pretty easily or isn't a major demographic there like for instance you know we've got we've got a course down in uh, st petersburg florida where 
we're working now. And their average age of their membership is is in the late 60s, early 70s. So we may, you know, we're not going to have a 7,000. I, I think the course is 6,200 or 6,300 from the tips anyway. But even if it was 6,600 from the tips, we might not have a 6,200-yard set of tees. We'd probably go straight down to 59 and have more than you would expect in the 5,000s to accommodate that. So that's sort of how you think of the demographic. Whereas if you're talking about a club that's a bunch of single handicappers, you may skip a, a tee box or two down low. You'd be at 45, and then you might go to 51, and then you might go to 57. But then you'd have 61, 65, 68, and 72. Right. I, I guess when, when I hear you talk about that, it makes a lot of sense. But the, I can't help but thinking, like, is is the concept of equitable shot shot values, shot distances, is that a desirable thing? I mean, wouldn't it be simple? Like in the old days, <laughs> other golf courses that, that, that you love, they'd have like two sets of tees, you know, or one set of tees, you know, and just, you just go out and play and, and don't worry about that kind of thing. So, I mean, is there value in just saying, you know, here's, here's one or two sets of tees, three sets of tees and go out and just hit the ball, you know, not going to worry about what club you're hitting in or, you know, you shouldn't worry about that kind of thing. Well, yeah, there's value in that, and that's you know, I, I'm with you there. But when the go- when golf is now a business and an industry, and it's talking about survival and all, you can't do that because you're trying to attract all levels of golf and the industry. All the industry is always talking about attracting new play and not losing old play. You know, we get you know the industry gets criticized for constantly working on attracting new golfers and, and neglecting the existing golfers. But either way, you're you're either not going to attract new golfers or you're going to lose older golfers if you had two or three sets of tees and said, just go out and play. And if that was working before, we wouldn't have changed where we are now. So let's just say, okay, let's say we got, let's just, for argument's sake, we have three sets of tees, okay, uh, on an old Westchester County golf course. And the back is 6,700, the front is 6,300, or the middle is 6,300, and the forward tees are. 5,800. Well, the people, a lot of the beginning golfers, a lot of the older golfers, a lot of the, you know, uh, other female golfers, they're not going to enjoy it from 5,800 yards. And so they're not going to play as much. And you can say, go out and do it, but they just won't enjoy it as much as you or I might from 62 or 6,700 yards. And and the, the experience is completely different. And now some of them accept that. And I'll go back to the course in Ohio, uh, a fantastic eye-opening conversation I had with this woman once. <clears throat> We're walking down a par three that plays 220 from the tips. And I think 180 or 170 from the front tees. And for all the offers. And this lady, it's funny. The people who are most resistant to forward tees are the ones that would benefit most from forward tees. It's true. It's, it, it's, that's, a, that's almost a fact, I would say. That's been my experience. Mm-hmm. So here's a woman who said, oh, well, we put in a few forward tees, but nobody ever used them, and we won't use them, and we don't want to use forward tees. I said, oh, okay, well, tell me, uh, what's your handicap? 29. Or maybe it was 31. Oh, okay. How long have you been playing? 25 years. Really? Okay. And so I said, well, you know, if we move tees up, you know, you might be able, you know, you, you get to hit the same club that your husband hits, a seven iron or so. 
oh, well, I don't like to hit my irons. I hit my woods. That's what I hit. I said, well, why is that? She said, well, I hit my woods all the time, so I'm good at those. I don't ever really hit my irons, so I'm not good at those. Well, here you go, lady. There's the problem right there. You know, you have conditioned yourself to think that that's the way golf should be for you and your demographic. I mean, you've been playing golf for 25, 30 years, and you're a 29 or 30 handicapper. God bless you if you enjoy that and other forms of masochism. So I think that people have never thought about it, but just because people, you know, at some point people never thought about electricity, but it's been pretty good, right? If equity, you know, an equal experience, and look, I'm not a guy who thinks that everyone should be equal in the world. I'm far from it, actually. You got to earn equity in certain ways, but... You know, a golf hole that is designed, let's go back to us, our architects, you know, if we've designed a golf course that's intended to play driver seven iron, so to speak, yet few people get to play driver seven iron, our design ideas aren't getting across and we're not selling what we're trying to to show and people aren't getting the experience that we as architects would like to promote, so to speak, you know, now by that same token, I'm also of the opinion of here's the tee, here's the green. I got all sorts of things in between. You go find the route. That's the way golf is supposed to be. I, I don't want to tell people you go from here to here to here, and this is where you're supposed to be. I don't do that. But by the same token, yardage is yardage. And if it's a driver seven iron for some, and you're thinking driver seven iron, and let's face it, Guy, men, male golf course architects are thinking like themselves to a certain extent. You know, we might not be like Nicholas and, and, and like he used to do, which is very difficult golf holes at all were fades. But we think, okay, here's a golf hole that's 400 yards. Here's the tee. I hit my tee shot 250, so I'm going to be in here, or, you know, uh, you know, I'll have a 700 degree, something like that. We, we think like that, or we think about from the backs and work our way forwards. So if we're designing something that doesn't come across, that doesn't really get ex- the experience from the majority of players, to a certain extent, I don't think we're doing our job. So that's why I think equity is a good idea. If we're going to design drive a hole that, that typically would play driver seven iron for people, it should play driver seven iron for all people. Now, even with that, you know, we have fairway bunkers that are 270 yards off the tip tees. You know, those fairway bunkers in some cases may not come into play for the person who's playing from 4,800 yards. They might be blowing over those bunkers. So they do have a bit of a different experience, but at least the green complex, if you put value on that, is going to be receiving a, 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 a mid iron versus a two iron. Well, I, I mean, I, I can't help but think, though, the, for so many years in the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, I mean, a lot of people would say, th- forget about what the quality of the golf courses were, but a lot of people would say that was kind of the heyday in American golf. That's when most people were participating. That's when golf was accessible. That's when municipal municipalities still looked at golf as a public good, like they did parks or libraries, and there was more support for it. And it wasn't until recent trends where golf rounds and golf participation started to decline. But when it was healthier, and this maybe I'm wrong about this, but when it was healthier, we didn't have five or six sets of tees on golf courses. That's been, that's a modern creation 
that probably became popularized in the 1980s. And, and that's kind of when it leads to golf becoming more popular, when you're trying to satisfy every golfer. Instead of just saying what you just said, which I thought was beautiful, here's the tee, here's the green, here are some things to figure out, go figure it out. That People were okay with that for a while. They didn't need to to have, you know, equitable shots. So I just, I can't help but think that the more we try to please everybody, the more complicated we make the game. And complication is the enemy of accessibility and ease and simplicity and participation. Okay, so let's, let's break some of that down. First of all, multiple sets of T's are... I don't think complicates the game at all. You go find the tee, the set of tees that you want. You know, we're going to lay the tee boxes out, but if you don't find your right set of tees, we can't help you. But at least you have that opportunity. So the tee boxes are there. What's complicated now without redoing your tees are these combo tees. That's confusing. You know, there's the greens and then there's the whites and then there are the green whites. You know, that's confusing. That's complicated. But I don't think, you know, if you had five sets of tees and they were called the 48s, the 54s, the 59s, the 63s, and the 7s, whatever you call them, that's too complicated. But let's go back to, all right, when golf was in its heyday, 50s, 60s, 70s, people were fine with that, okay? What people were fine with that? White guys like us, you know, the typical country club golfer, the businessman golfer, junior golfers that had the opportunity to play there. Not many women played back then. Um, so there was a group of people that were perfectly happy with it, but there were a group of people that never stepped foot on a golf course because they didn't know anything about it. And because they, um, probably because they thought it was too difficult and no one was trying to help them make it more fun or playable or easier. Um, not that it's an easy game or should be an easy game, but what else did they see back in the fifties and sixties and seventies? Big wide fairways that were a little rough here and there, you know, and greens that rolled at a four, five, six, seven, which were easy to putt, less, less maintenance was needed. You know, you know, there was your patchworks of, patchwork of green shades and browns, tee to green, you know. So we made golf complicated. We made golf too difficult for a couple of reasons. One is, as we created technical advance, technological advances to make things easier, we didn't make things easier on the on the maintenance side or operation side we just started pushing the envelope to make conditions even better and that's where things went haywire we we made you know from one from one aspect things got people demanded better playing conditions which cost more money and people lost accessibility because of that municipalities couldn't match they didn't have them they could they could give you a good facility when the fairways were mowed half an inch and they were, and it's easy you mow them with big giant gang mower, you know, pulled by a tractor and they were, it wasn't a big deal for 40 yards for 40 or 50 yard wide fairways. And it was easy to maintain greens that were rolling at a five or six. It didn't cost as much money to do that. So the municipalities could give you those conditions and nobody cared that the bunk, you know, no one was checking bunker sand firmness back then or how white the sand was. There was just sand. And it was a hazard, and nobody worried about sand proing those suckers on a weekly or daily basis. But as conditions were became more and more demanding, municipalities and other people couldn't handle it. They didn't have the money to do that, and so that's where municipal golf started falling off. 
The other side of that is going back to golf on TV and watching the golfers and say, oh, well, that's that must be great golf. That narrow fairway with all those trees. And wow, look at those greens and how fast they are. We want those conditions. Well, that costs money. And so private clubs could get there and they got there and, you know, they lost a lot of strategic value, but they were able to handle that. Municipal courses, forget about it. There's no way they could do that. So I, I think, you know, now they're finally realizing, okay, maybe we need to ratchet back on machinery. We don't need lightweight fairway mowers that can, you know, that, you know, that are really cool, whatever you want to call them. We need to just mow the fairway. You know, we're actually going backwards a little bit, which is great. You know, companies are, are, are selling gang, you know, gang, you know, five gang, seven gang mowers that can be pulled by tractors now again. You know, instead of trying to get the greatest, newest technological advance, which was a, a lightweight fairway mower that can mow on certain artificial slopes, but would only be, you know, uh, 30 feet wide. You know, if you have a gang mower that's mowing, 70 feet wide and a little fairway mower that's mowing 30 feet wide going to take you twice as much effort to use the smaller mower but it gives you the better cut and it's the cool thing you know um that's where there are problems for now so circle back to the t idea five or six t box is the least of our problems on the golf course but what it does is it gives people more opportunity to play and enjoy the game I think what I'm what I'm hearing from you is is really it goes back to what we were talking about earlier is I, I hate to term it this way but I can't think of a better way to put it is to educate the golfer into accepting something a different model than than they've been trained to accept over the last 25 years which is unsustainable expensive too difficult etc and it, so go ahead absolutely yeah. that's it right there right and and i and think the only way to do that is you, you you can talk about it to a point you can listen to a podcast talk about it you can read it in a magazine but you don't you won't be converted to a new way of thinking until you experience it until you go out on a golf course that that has all these elements that you're talking about the kind of courses that you've been building and experience it and realize and that's when the light bulb goes on but the problem is we don't there aren't that many there are but there aren't that many examples of that type of golf that's accessible that's public so you're you're only reaching a small amount of people at any given time so that's why i go back to like well if there's going to be a movement it's got to be in the public and possibly the municipal realm, because that's how you're going to change attitudes. It's got to start with experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what we we're, we're doing every day. And one of the greatest compliments I got was from, wasn't even from me, but uh, it was a Keller. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. Of Ramsey County, one of the stalwarts of twin cities, public golf, a friend of mine from a private high end private country club up there, went out there, with his greens committee chairman or with his club president and they walked around and played maybe. And they said, and they came to some, uh, one of the holes that I've got a bunker in the middle of the fairway. Um, what I would like to think is compelling architecture. And the club president said, why can't we have this where we are and where they were is narrow tree line fairways, you know? So you're absolutely right. We reach more people publicly. We reach more people on the public arena, but we can get the private golfers to go see the public golf as well. 
then they go back to private golf clubs and start transforming themselves as well. That helps because, you know, just more people. So it's a one golfer at a time. It's educating the golfer. And the more people that can educate the individual golfers, the easier it is. So we can reach when we can reach some guys on the PGA Tour that think outside the box. And there are one or two out there that think like that. Um, you know, Zach Blair seems to be tweeting a lot and he seems to appreciate architecture. But Jeff Ogilvy is another guy who now he's in the business in Australia with Michael Clayton. But I remember about a decade ago, he wrote an article on the back of Golf World magazine that just blew me away with his knowledge and his approach to golf architecture, which was nothing like what the typical professional golfer or PGA pro thinks. You know, the club pro, boy, don't get in between, don't get anything between me and you know, the T and the green that can affect my score. Right. You know, that that's a big problem. So it's one person at a time. You're absolutely right. I want to go back. Uh, we were talking about the Jones family uh, a little while ago. When we talked the other day on the phone, you told me that one of your projects was Tanglewood in North Carolina, and you termed it, it's a bunker project, but it's really a, a bunker, uh, I guess a restoration is the way you put it, to back to the original Robert Trent Jones course that was built in the 60s, and Tanglewood, of course, hosted the 1973 PGA Championship. Can talk about that a little bit? We Because I, I want to bring this up because in the last podcast, uh, Ron Force and I were talking about, are we going to get to this point when... Uh, somebody's going to want to do a, a faithful restoration of a Robert Trent Jones course. And you're kind of doing the, some version of that at Tanglewood. Oh, uh, I am. Yeah. Which is, it's a challenge because of the public golfer, you know, they're looking at having some sort of a tour event there in the next few years. And they're actively speaking to a variety of tours and there's love on both sides. So something will happen there. And with what we're doing, that's going to help. But by the same token, I walked that golf course. I took a series of walks with a group of golfers and we walked the golf course. You know, I didn't walk it with a tour official, you know, and say, okay, well, what do we need to do here to get a tour event? Never, I've never had any talks with any of them, but I walked with about a hundred golfers, public golfers, male, female, young, old, low handicapper, high handicapper, they appreciated that golf course for its history and for its look. And, and they understood the big picture, but they also, we, we also found ways to make it more playable for them yet still preserve as much of Robert Trent Jones as possible. And what I restored was the 19 back to the 1974 PGA championship, because I'm going to contradict everything we've been talking about, but <laughs> Jones came in awesome. in 73, 74 and, and, and jacked it up a little bit so Lee Trevino can win the PGA. Um, and it's there today. It's still there in place. They haven't touched the course since that event. And it's a big part of their marketing is we hosted the 74 PGA and we hosted the 87 to 2002 Vantage Championship and a Publix Golf uh, Champion, USGA Publix Championship and a couple other things. Um, so they use that as marketing. But there are people in Winston-Salem that go out there and play every week, you know, uh, retired guys that play that golf course all the time. And before we got there, they played 186, they played through 186,000 square feet of bunker. So what we did was one of the, 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 one of the, one specific 
conflict between the public golfer and restoring that golf course is that a lot of the greens were somewhat shallow. You know, they were more east-west than north-south, so to speak. And that was a challenge for Trevino and the gang, you know, but they could stop. They, they'd be hitting a seven iron into those greens. Older guys now are hitting seven woods into those greens, and they have no prayer of stopping them, stopping uh, keeping the ball on the green. Well, in a lot of those holes, there are bunkers in front, and there are bunkers behind. And so in a good number of holes, we just removed the bunker behind the green. Other holes, we kept the bunker behind the green, but made sure that we had wide enough opening in front that you could at least run something up. Whether you stop it on the green or not, it's another story. But that was an inherent challenge, specific challenge, that we had to figure out how to do it. That's how we did it there. Before we started, I walked that golf course, and it is just big. It's large-scale, dramatic, and there's a place for that in golf architecture. Do I want to play a course like that every single day? No, not necessarily. Um, do I think every course should be like that? No, not necessarily. You know, Baskin Robbins, baby, 32 flavors. So there should be a bunch of flavors of golf architecture. But I think that's a flavor that should be, should be brought back. Pistachio ice cream, bring it back, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that people should restore Robert Trent Jones courses because, let's, I mean, the bottom line is this. Whether you like him, his design work or not, whether you think his golf courses lack strategy or not, he was the king of the business from the mid-50s to the early 80s. And so that's a big chunk of our history. And there's a reason. Whether it's right or wrong, I mean, you know, his, his approach as it evolved is not my approach. I am much I, – I, I, the more I do this – the fewer bunkers I want on my golf courses, you know, and he evolved, you know, he, he evolved from a guy who was very golden age. You know, he worked for Stanley Thompson and some of his older golf courses really had some cool golden age, you know, attributes, but then he got working for some of these other clubs in the fifties and, you know, Oakland Hills, uh, Oak Hill, I'm trying to blank about a couple others, you know, that 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 are U.S. Open behemoths became the Open Doctrine. Right. Well, he started and, to design courses, you know, like like uh, Bell Reeve knew they were getting a major, uh, Hazeltine, Hazeltine. Uh, Firestone. These are all the courses that hired him just to make a difficult golf course. I heard um, on the uh, State of the Game podcast, uh, Ran Morissette, who you probably know. Um, was talking about Robert Trent Jones. This came up, and and I thought he I thought he put it really well. He said at some point in Trent Jones's career, he became hired to build a Trent Jones golf course. His product began to define him, and it had a very it had a very specific brand meaning. And people didn't hire him to say, you know, here's my piece of land, you know, build the best golf course. They said, we want your golf. We want a Trent Jones golf course, and that's probably happened sometime. What do you think? Like in the around 1960, you know, mid-50s into the 60s? Absolutely. Yeah, and, and Rand's exactly right. I do know Rand. He's here in town. Uh, and Rand's exactly right. And the same thing happened to Pete Dye. You know, yeah. Pete Dye, though, you know, I believe Pete Dye decided he's going to be the antithesis of Robert Trent Jones, and then people want to hire him to build a Pete Dye golf course. I, I, I don't – I think he relishes – he would relish in the idea of what a Pete Dye golf course is – 
more so than something that's more golden age, you know, but Robert Trent Jones evolved into Robert Trent Jones. And I think he was satisfied with that. I mean, how many of us in the business are really being honest with ourselves? You know, if somebody came to us and said, we want you to build a golf course that you've been building, you know, we're going to give you a whole bunch of money. We would build it to a certain extent. You know, somebody might call that a cop out, but I just call that that maybe somebody calls that good business. I don't know. Maybe somebody calls that giving the client what they want. But Rand's exactly right. So I'm supportive of restoring Robert Trent Jones golf courses in the right places, you know, mm-hmm. without a doubt. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing with that is, and I, I talked about this with Ron Forrest, is that, you know, we have a we have an idea in our head about what Trent Jones courses are, but we don't, we look at them what they are today, and we really don't think about what they were like when he originally designed them. And I'm talking about the early Trent Jones career. And the equivalent would be if we, you know, if you saw a unrestored Donald Ross course, you wouldn't, you think that Donald Ross was a great architect because so he had probably been renovated a few times, is overgrown with trees, the mowing patterns had changed, et cetera, et cetera. So I think to really view Trent Jones properly would be through a restoration where you really peel back all the layers and find out what the original intent and what the original course looked like. And there aren't too many examples of that existing right no, now. And- Right, and Tanglewood in 1960 probably was, but Tanglewood in 1974 probably wasn't. Neither was Hazeltine or Bellarive. You know, um, his early, early work, without a doubt, if you can find it and restore it, that'd be great. Now, we are actually, there's, you know, there's 54 holes at Tanglewood. There's the championship course, and there's a little 18-hole part three. But then there's a course called the Reynolds course, which is Robert Trent Jones um, that was built around the same time as the championship course a little bit later and separated by some years with nine holes earlier than the other nine holes. But that's what my approach with that one is, is we're going to do old school, just out of Stanley Thompson, uh, you know, the Stanley Thompson stable, Robert Trent Jones there, you know, cause the green, the, the whole golf course is much more human scale than, than Tanglewood or Hazeltine or any of the, Robert Trent Jones, build me a Trent Jones golf course, golf courses. So what Tangle is going to end up having is it's going to have two different Robert Trent Jones eras. And we're just starting on the renovation business plan for that right now. But I think it's going to be real special for that. And it's going to require a little research of, of, of Robert Trent Jones of the late 30s and 40s. But I think it's going to be pretty cool. Uh, so you're you've been very busy the last few years. I think you you told me you have later eight or nine projects going on this year. Uh, things are going well, but for a long time you were, you know, trying to to get your foot in the door. You were kind of on the outside looking in, trying to establish yourself. How difficult was that? to stay with it what made you stay with it for so long and and i know you you experienced you know missing out on jobs and commissions to quote-unquote name architects what kept you going and and how frustrating was that getting up to this Um, point well i had no plan b i still don't have a plan b um since i was 15 i was the plan b golf course architect and uh, the last 10 years have been fantastic, really last 13 years. I mean, and every year in the last decade, we've gotten busier and busier, and it's been fun. But the early 90s, <clears throat> you know, we were still in the in another dark age of golf architecture. Where there were big firms, and the main deal was, you know, there were big firms, there were 
professional golfer, name architect firms, the signature designer, and then we're selling, we're building golf courses to sell residential development, pure and simple. And so, yeah, you know, good luck with 50 yard wide fairways there or, 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 or a, a double fairway, you know, of 150 yards wide that's serving the first and 18th hole. It's all about, you know, loading up those fairways with home sites. And so a residential developer didn't care about golf course architecture. They didn't care that a hazard should challenge a golfer or penalize the golfer. They didn't care. They certainly didn't care about tee shot distance equity or anything like that. They wanted to sell big, giant backyards. And so they were going to go with um, proven commodities. And they didn't care about, about uh, innovative golf architecture. So that was a challenge from when I started out on my own in 92. I worked for Dan Maples and Dennis Griffiths previously. And I started a company called Hole-in-One Design Group, Hole with a W, with three civil engineers out of Eastern Maryland at the time. And we were multidisciplinary. Golf architecture, of course, landscape architecture, civil engineering, geotechnical work, land planning. We did it all, which should have been very attractive for the residential golf course developers, but they were too enamored with guys, big names, um, tour victories, people with a vision, uh, with a roll of, you know, drawings under their arm, looking out into a great piece of property where they're going to uh, eventually, unfortunately, create a 7,000 yard 30 yard wide long 30 yard wide fairway loaded with homes on both sides golf course you know don't know why you need to look over you know talk about great pieces of property when you're just doing that but nonetheless that was that was what was going on back then restoration also hey nobody cared about who donald ross really was nobody cared nobody knew who styles and van cleek were or langford or moreau or tom bendelow or any of those guys, nobody, or, or, or even Thompson, nobody knew any of those guys. You know, the Donald Ross Society showed up in the early 90s. Um, I think 1990, I remember, well, I think I was one of the first 100 members of it. And that was the first, you know, there was no golf club atlas. There were no podcasts. Uh, There's no internet either, right? So all you had was residential golf course development. And they weren't going to hire a 25, 26-year-old guy for that. So for the all throughout the nineties, it was touch and go, and we scraped and 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 got work, you know, and we got a few of those residential developments, you know, um, in the you know mid to late nineties. Uh, we got a couple of cool projects, you know. One of my favorite projects to this day was a nine-hole expansion, core golf, for Seaford Golf and Country Club in Seaford, Delaware, which had an original Alfred Toll golf course from nineteen forty-eight. And my nine mimics Alfred Toll. We made some adjustments. We, you know, we got a little bit more variety, but ain't a soul knew who Alfred Toll was back then or cared. But his greens were really cool on the front nine. So we kind of did that. And that was, that was sort of a cool project. So what kept me in the game was just the love of golf architecture. And if that's your dream, you got to keep after it, plain and simple. And then I actually ended up, went out on my own and, uh, April of 99 and eventually bought all my partners out and changed the company to Richard Mandel Golf Architecture because the whole in one concept wasn't selling and um, people wanted a person you know they didn't want a company you know when you were on a bid list there were 25 names Golden Bear Design and Hole in One Design Group well there are 25 names the greatest golfer all that ever lived and <laughs> three guys in Maryland one guy in Atlanta you know who you gonna hire so changed the company name and 
we just scraped away, scraped by, and had a, the same product that I have now back then, which was playability, enjoyment. I had just the challenge, not to penalize. You know, stop spending so much money. It's not all about aesthetics. Let's create something cool. Let's find the best golf holes and do it. You know, which you could never do with residential golf course development in the '90s. So we got, you know, Raleigh Country Club was really a, a breakthrough for me up here in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is Don Ross's last design set by some people. That's always a debate. What was Don Ross's last design? Maybe it was his last design wearing a red suit. I don't know. But he did a routing in April of 40, uh, in uh, March of 48 and died April 28th, I think, of 48. Never saw it. Ellis Maples built it. But that was our, our first real breakthrough was a bunker restoration there. And I remember back then, in 2004, 2005, you didn't have uh, aerial photography online. And I had to go to Wake County and go in the back rooms and find file cabinets and go through file cabinets and seek out aerial photographs on 8.5 by 11s with a magnifying glass. And then figure out how to, then I would scan it and expand it and lay it on in my AutoCAD and we went from there. It's a lot easier to find aerial photography now. But Raleigh was sort of the first breakthrough, and we just kept going from there. So, I mean, you represented a certain style of, of design and a certain type of architect that's pretty popular now. That You know, the idea of width and playability and hazards should be hazards and a lot of short grass. And, and those things have been in vogue now for the last 15 years or, or maybe a little longer. But you were, you were advocates of that kind of thing in the early nineties from your beginning. So when you sit back and think about that, are you like proud that you got there so early at such a young age? Are you, or are you like, you know, shit, I've been doing this forever and now everybody else is doing it too. And I'm still, you know, not getting maybe enough uh, credit for, for being that type of architect. Yeah. Yeah. There's some thought about that here and there when you see a lot of people coming in, just advocating and talking about it, you know, and you're know, like, hey, man, I've been doing that for a long time. So I'm glad you're, you're with me. You know, um, part of our success has been the last 10 years has been because of that. But, yeah, there's a certain amount of, of thought like that. I mean, I'm, I'm not proud. I mean, I wouldn't say that I've ushered in anything because nobody else would agree with that. And I don't say that. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's the right answer. That's all. I, when I think about that, it's that's just the right answer. I'm glad we're getting the right answer now. You know, whereas we didn't have the right answer. Um, but what happens is, you know, in the last 10, you know, we've been so busy. I don't have, I don't really go visit courses. Like a lot of architects go visit places. And fortunately for me, I'm too busy that I can, I can't just go visit and I can't make contacts with a lot of people because we're just busy doing our own work. And, uh, I don't write as much as I used to, you know? And so there are people that haven't been as busy. Now they get an opportunity to tweet more and write more. And promote themselves, which is great. We're promoting. I'm promoting myself right now. And as soon as I get off this phone call, I'll probably promote myself some other way. Um, it's it's sort of interesting, you know. You have it, it takes a lot of effort to to maintain things. And so, what the work that I did have in the early you know, in the in the '90s kept me alive. And I didn't really have the access to a lot of the projects because of my age. But then once 2000 the 2000s rolled around. I was so busy with restoration work and renovation work that I never really had a chance to go after some really cool work, new projects. I mean, I would say the first decade of the 2000s, I probably sent out less than 
less than 10 proposals for new work. And that's because I was busy with restoration work and renovation work. And I know Ron has that same challenge every day because Ron Force is in that same boat or was in that same boat, still is. So yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's like, hey, come over here, check us out now. You know, we want to do, I mean, golf art, doing golf course products better than no golf work at all, without a doubt. Um, and for me, a big challenge is how can you, you know, solve problems? Let's, one of the things we've been, we've been successful is taking products that a lot of people don't want because they see no future in it and carving something out that works for the client and that's somewhat special. Those products don't ever get recognized or talked about, you know. Um, but it's golf architecture, and it's a lot tougher. That's got to take that's a gotta be frustrating, so, you know. Yeah, it, it, it's a lot tougher to take a a, a condo line flat golf course, you know, that's uh, you know where the average age is sixty nine and creates something special versus here's five hundred acres at Streamsong or Sand Valley. Go find yourself a golf course, you know. Right. Um, but you're, so, you're right. So many, so much of the golf industry is is wrapped up, and the golf media, to be fair, is is wrapped up in the idolation of the stream songs and the sand valleys. And there's good reason. These are special places that I mean, I think will be relevant a hundred years from now. But when you considering that, and then considering the work that you do, and what we've, what you and I have been talking about, about how things that actually have the potential to make golf a better game or preserve the best aspects of golf as we know it that, that get overlooked. When you sit back and consider these, these kind of two ends, how does that make you feel? How do you assess the current state of golf design from your chair? Uh, I mean, it's certainly another golden age, so to speak. Um, as soon as it, it, it really blows up on the municipal level, it certainly will be more a, a true golden age. Um, Right now, a lot of the golf courses that get get the publicity and get the notoriety aren't touching many golfers. They aren't touching the average golfer, and it's not changing. You know, it's not changing the whole attitude of golfers in general, because the people that can go to those courses, they're already, they're already on board. You know, it's the people that are entrenched in their own club or in, in, can't afford to go to those places, so to speak, that still think that golf is supposed to be tree-lined, narrow fairways, perfect conditions. So with our work, I am proud in the sense that we can, we can change, uh, change minds. You know, I'm not necessarily talking, you, know, you can change media's mind. The media is on board with where the state of, the golf, of golf course design is going. But what about the 28, you know, the, the 31 handicap, 65 year old lady? Can you change her mind? You know, if you can start touching her and well, changing her mind, I should say. I don't want to get caught in a meat. <laughs> yeah, there, there's but, some, uh, some some stuff going on right now that uh, <laughs> just be glad yeah. you're not testifying. That's right. That's right. Oh, I'd be in trouble. <laughs> um, but you know, change her mind. Change the the 26 year old bomber who thinks that golf is all about you know, the longer, the better, you know, the straighter, the better, you know, get a hold of the 43 year old greens committee chairman who wants to make a statement for himself and wants to create, you know, worry about what the course rating of the golf course is change those people. Those are the people you got to change, you know, conversations with a bunch of women walking down a golf course is eye opening, you know, and a lot of the guys that are doing work now, 
have never had those conversations and aren't really affecting change in that regard. They're great designing great golf courses. And let me tell you right now, I kill for a site like some of those sites, you know, and I want those sites. I'm looking for those sites, you know, by the same token, we don't have those sites necessarily, but it, it's fun to watch people change. I had a golf course project in China, actually, that at the end of the project, towards the end of the project, the owner came up to me and in perfect, flawless Mandarin, he said, <laughs> how would you know oh, if his Mandarin was flawed? Fly, I wouldn't. Yeah. I'm just joking, really. I have no clue. But I was say, he said to me, and I'm going to tell you right now, it wasn't in English, but the translator said so. He, met, he said, now I understand how all this comes together. Now I understand it. it's great. That's what the translator said. For all we know, he might have said, what are you kidding me? This is horrible. You know. Yeah. But anyway, joking aside. Um, but it's nice to, to see people say, wow, this is great. It's nice to hear of some Greens chairman at his club saying, why can't we have this at Keller, you know, what he sees at Keller, you know, and it's not mind boggling, innovative, out of the box thinking. It's just solid golf architecture that the golden age architects knew about. And frankly, they didn't have the ability to move the dirt and do the things and have the, the technology that we have, which was a good thing because technology has hurt our business. And even, you know, and still now we're, we're getting away from it still, which is good. So, yeah. You wrote, I was, I'm going to see if I can get you to answer this. Uh, this is quite a while back on golfclubatlas.com. You wrote a piece about the best course you'll never play. I'm paraphrasing that. And it was a, you described a project in the southeast of the United States and it was, you said it was one of the best properties you'd seen not next to you know dunes or an ocean and the project went to to somebody else but you had a, a great concept for that and i think there was even a, a a whole layout um a routing plan that you posted can you tell us what that project was so much time's gone by did that course get built by somebody else and what is it well there's a great postscript but let me tell you the the, the beginning of the story okay um that golf course never got built it was actually in Westchester County, New York. Oh. It was in, a, uh, like on uh, this in Salem, New York. It was on the border of Salem and, and whatever the next town is up in Westchester. Um, you know, my my neck of the woods. Yeah, and it was a wooded site. Ironically, what a great piece of topography. And I walked every inch of it and came up with the routing where every single hole's strategy was determined by the by the topography. And to me, that's the ultimate golf hole. A golf hole's whose strategy includes hazards are challenged but not penalized, but uh, uh, whose strategy is derived from the site is the best golf hole you can have. Whether it's, you know, uh, the eighth hole at Pebble Beach or the sixth hole at Pebble Beach, which, by the way, is one of my favorites, that part five, or, or um, you know, the, the, uh, the 18th hole wing foot, whatever it might be. If the topography, and that's not really a great example, so forgive me, but if the topography determines the lay of the land, that's the best golf hole. And this site had that. And I routed 18 holes, and it was just, I mean, in my mind, phenomenal. You know, I'm not biased, of course, but that was a great routing. And we had a great marketing plan, and, and I really got into the detail of that. And they ended up hiring a guy who they owed, some guy who worked for a big-name architect and did something else for him before, and they just said, you know, that you know, they had they hired him. Um, they didn't care about all that. You know, this was a core golf course, and 
I, there was a hotel attached to it, and this wasn't this guy wasn't a big name, but I'm sure if it got anywhere, they would have just thrown some tour pro's name on top of it. They ended up hiring that guy and didn't really understand what I was showing them. Whereas now, I mean, I'd love to show it to some some of these developers, you know, and they 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 dig it and we build it. So that was it, and that was the story, and it never got built. But the postscript is, I was in a Italian restaurant here in town with my son and this couple walked in and they were talking and I realized they were from Westchester County, New Rochelle. And so he, we got to talking and turns out he's from, he, he was on his way to Sarasota, Florida. They have a home in Sarasota and they have a home just a mile or so away from where I'm working right now for the city, Bobby Jones Golf Club. So we kind of kept in touch and the next time I was down there, we had dinner and he started telling me about this project that he was involved in and lo and behold it was the same property <laughs> and it was a man he wasn't the primary guy but he was involved I, I think he actually was the landowner but the developer was who i was dealing with i mean and that was just amazing that after all these years we stumbled upon each other and i never met him before because i only worked through the developers and that and that property is still awaiting development uh yeah i mean it's awaiting something i don't right. know <laughs> okay. Uh, if anybody wants to read that, it's on golfclubatlas.com. It's in the uh, In My Opinion section, I believe. And you can look at it. Richard's got a, a couple of pieces in there. Um, it's a pretty interesting thing. And, and the, the holes look really great. If you ever did get to build that, I think it would be some something pretty entertaining. It would be the epitome of Westchester County Golden Age Golf. It would be phenomenal. Now, speaking of Golden Age, you uh, have been living in Pinehurst in, since, what, 2000? And that that's your home base, and Pinehurst is the cradle of golf. What 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 did you think of the uh, number two, I guess, fairway restoration that Coor and Crenshaw and their guys did? Um, it was good. It's the right thing to do. Definitely the right thing to do compared to what existed before. Yes. So I, I can I t- t- take it by your lack of of uh, elaboration? Uh, there are things that. Uh, don't sit well with you because you care you care a lot about pioneers you've written books about the development of that whole area the whole carolina sand hills you've done as much research probably on that area and pinehurst as, as anybody yeah you're you're exactly right you're exactly right so, so uh, okay can i get you to, can i i can't get you to elaborate on that or uh talk elaborate about, on, the, on yeah i mean something i'm i'm taking that something doesn't sit well with you about about the number two uh how that turned out um i think it turned out great i really do you know um it was a great concept and it was the right thing to do without a doubt okay and uh warren crenshaw did a good job could did a good job at it i'm going to ask you this and and it, it i don't think you'll take it as a sensitive question but i asked steve smyers a similar question you know his office is out of lakeland florida stream song you know is just down the road from his backyard and he didn't get you know a shot at any of the three courses there pinehurst is your backyard does it you know do you should you be involved in some of the work that's been gone on that's gone on around there in the last decade or so does that does that rub you the wrong way a lot of work's been done there's been things that development there opportunities so do you mean should the guy who 
is about as busy as anybody in the industry the last 10 years. Who was Boardroom Magazine Golf Course Architect of the Year last year, who knows Donald Ross as well as anybody. Should have maybe done any work there. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I mean, I'm a golf course architect now that, you know, we're national, baby. We got work from Florida, Minnesota, and we're proud. And uh, we are working at Southern Pines Country Club. Good. I want to talk about uh, that. We've done a, I did a plan a long time ago, back in 06, 07, um, that has a lot of characteristics that have, that you'll see elsewhere in Moore County now. Um, and what, and, but they never had the money to do anything. And we're slowly going to be, we've been slowly doing a little bit here and there, mostly tree clearing, but we're gearing up to do some major tree clearing and some major and spending that money on the golf course for the first time. And so Brian Ross, my, my main guy here, and I were talking just yesterday, how are we going to distinguish Southern Pines from elsewhere in Moore County? And we will. But right now, that master plan preceded a lot of the work in, in Piners. But I, I'm, I'm glad to make my hay elsewhere. And I don't mind getting up at 3.50, you know, leaving the house at 3.30 in the morning, flying to Ohio, spending a day in Ohio and coming back home and uh, doing great things there, you know. There's a lot more work outside Moore County than there is in Moore County. Great place to raise a family, though. I'm glad to hear that that you're involved in Southern Pines and that there's a potential for that. Because don't you feel like that represents the greatest opportunity to do something special in the Pioneer area right now? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's the most accessible golf course for the most people, uh, without a doubt. So you are going to touch, you're going to get more people to go see what you're all about and what your opinion of what golf should be, you know, and try to change those minds. We talk about changing one golfer at a time, you know, with central hazards in a public setting that won't slow play down, you know, interesting rolling greens, uh, green surrounds that aren't necessarily full of bunkers or on the flip side, all of a sudden shaved down, you know, a lot of trends that are happening in the last 10 years are good for golf, but just like everyone mimicked Robert Trent Jones back at, at, at some period, and then everyone was doing residential development, we're getting a little vanilla, very, very tasty vanilla, but everything's, you know, everyone's sort of doing a lot of similar things and taking certain design ideas out of context even, such as everywhere you go, every green complex is shaved down, you know, which I love, don't get me wrong, and we do that. But if it's out of context, just because you want to do that, you know, I'm not sure that we're being authentic enough, so to speak. I looked online at the the uh, archives of Donna Ross's sketches from all the different courses. I think it's from the you know, his scans from the Tufts archives. And I looked up Southern Pines and the green surveys and, and sketches and diagrams they have are not. Ross's, they're John LaFoy's from whatever year he did his his Greens uh, renovation there, um, which is kind of funny that the, those are in the file and not Ross. I don't know if, did you, do you know, did Ross, have you ever come across Ross's Southern Pines ideas for the Greens? Um, in an article that someone sent to me uh, from an old USGA record from like 1915, no drawings, but just here's what he did. It was very vague. So I wrote this book about Piners. The first edition came out in 2007, and it's a book about all the golf courses in the Sandhills, not just Piners. And as I started researching, I just, I've been through the archives. 
every folder in the archives I've been in. And at some point I realized I have not connected Donald Ross to Southern Pines Country Club yet. What's that all about? So then I delved deeper and I went and I found and I went through online the the minutes from every single Southern Pines Town Council meeting from nineteen oh five to nineteen forty eight to April of nineteen forty eight when Ross died. And not and found not one reference to Donald Ross. And so my my book talks says something, you know, hey, it's a, people say it's a Donald Ross golf course, but I can't tell you it isn't. But I can't tell you it is, I can't tell you it isn't. You know, I didn't say it wasn't. I just said I just reported the facts, sir, you know, and uh, it ruffled some people the wrong way. But I mean, I didn't say it wasn't. I just said I hadn't found anything that said it says it was, you know, um, there's a big difference there. I'll never forget one guy, you know, one older guy came to my office ready to fight. I'm just kidding. He wasn't ready to fight, but he's like, hey, man, that's a Donald Ross golf course. You know, Ran, Ran Moore said, Ran will tell you, he just said, Rich, who else could route that golf course other than Donald Ross? Mm-hmm. My response, well, 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 you know, Tilling Ass probably could. I bet you I mean, a lot of people could route that golf course. It's basic drainage, 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 high point to high point to high point. I mean, it's a great routing. It's it great. Piece yeah. Of but there are other human beings that could route that golf course other than Don Ross. And so the older guy that came in the office, by the time he left, he was doubting his, his as well. And I just told him, look, I don't know. The only evidence, there's no evidence. Then something came across my desk, which was actually, I went through every folder of the archives, but in the display case, there was a dollar list of Don Ross golf courses. And if you opened it up, it said Southern Pines Country Club, 1927 or 1925 for your year. So, all right, well, there's evidence after the book, but that's not enough evidence because somewhere in the world today and 50 years from now, somebody might come across a trifold Richard Mandel golf course brochure, golf course architecture brochure that talks about a little golf course in Erie, Pennsylvania. Now, I did Erie golf course and I just started doing a little work for another course in Erie and I listed it. But it never happened. So if anybody cared, one day somebody might think that I did something out there, but I didn't. So that wasn't enough evidence. But then finally somebody sent me something. Um, it was a golf club Alice guy. And it was an article that he found in the in USGA golf record of around 1915 that said Donald Ross renovated Southern Pines. But it didn't say he rerouted it. He said he moved several greens and he removed several tees, you know, which is great, you know. So, you know, what I have is a 1938 aerial or so, I forget what year, but I've got an aerial from the late 30s for Southern Pines. And I use that as the basis of my, of my renovation business plan. Um, we've never done a pure restoration. And sometimes people hammer you, you know, restoration is a dirty word as far as I'm concerned at this point, because if you were to do a true restoration, you'd pick a lot of people off, number one. Number two, you know, it wouldn't, yeah, well, scene number one, I guess. But if you don't do a, perfect, a, a, a true restoration, then idealists will hammer you for that and say you're just manipulating things to make things the way you want them to do. Well, no, I'm trying to make my client happy. I'm trying to, you know, maximize the investment, investment that my client has on this piece of property. And to do some restoration work is foolishness. So... Uh, we have the 1938 aerial as our basis and used a lot of it, but we went off, you know, I'm going off script and I can't wait to 
clear some trees and, and use some of that timber money to do some things out there. I think when you play Southern Pines, the thing that sticks out to most people who, who are observant is how the greens, they, they feel like modern greens in an old environment. They feel like something that was built in the 90s, maybe. They, just, they don't have that, um, they just don't have a, an old feel to them. Do you, when you think about what you might do with those greens, what is what are you what are you thinking is more appropriate there? Well, so those greens were done by John Lafoy in 1989, and John's a great guy. And Don John did a great job back then. And I like the greens, even though I know they're not Don Ross. You know, and do they fit perfectly at Southern Pines? No, but he did a great job. He did the job he was hired for. There was no Don Ross Society back then. Nobody gave a hoot about Don Ross back then. Frankly, you know. I have a t-shirt from the 1991 tour championship that's got, or I don't have it anymore, but I had it for the longest time that had Donald Ross on it. And that was like the first Donald Ross thing you had, but that was 1991. So what I would do is, you know, I would not do what you see at Piners number two, because those greens are not the prototypical. Those are, those are what people think Donald Ross are about, but those are the, you know, are, are the exception more so than the rule. And so, you know, we would, I would look at, <clears throat> I would look at the 1930 aerial and, and, and start with the size and shape and location of each of those greens and go from there. And then really just sort of go into my mind and say, okay, what are, you know, what would, what are Don Ross greens? You know, they're not what, you, they're not turtlebacks of number two. They're, and they're not all squares. They're a variety across the board. But some of the trends that he has is he's got quadrants. He's got he's got halves. He's got left half, right half. He's got front half, back half, as everyone does. But he has four quadrants sometimes. He's got two quadrants in the front and a one half in the back. He's got two quadrants on the left, one half on the right. All sorts of things like that. But they all sort of connect to existing grade at some point. Most of them do. On, on rolling land. On flat land, they are built up but they're not built up turtlebacks necessarily. In fact, they're almost very subtle. They're, they're, they're pitched on the edges, you know, um, more so than people think in balls. And, you know, they don't, because he was trying to keep water out of bunkers back then and, um, and all. So we would go in and I would say, okay, let's go with the aerial. And then let's also, let's, let's become, uh, what would Donald Ross do? You know, what has he done in the past? You know, when I restore Ross courses, I don't really look at color photographs of old Ross courses because you don't really know what happened. You don't know. Somebody in the 60s could have rebuilt a green and nobody knows that they did that because no one's around. But people think that that might be Donald Ross. I look at Golf Has Never Failed Me. It's the only book I look at. It's the only thing I'm interested in when I restore Donald Ross Golf Course. And that's the Ron Witten's compilation of Ross's own writings. And you can, you know, I'll, I'll find precedent there to make sure that I'm not going off script too much in restoration work or at Southern Pines or anywhere else, because that's what Ross said. Ross did talk all the time about flashing sand, yet only recently have people started to flash bunkers like you know, when they do Don Ross work. Did he do grass face flat sand? Absolutely, but not 100% of the time. And there are people out there still that think that that's what he did 100% of the time. You know, if you go back to the early 90s, when the Ross Society first started, or when restoration started happening, when you were at a club, Ross Club in America, 
where would you go to learn about Donald Ross? And I ask this question all the time. Where would you go, Derek? Where's the first place you would think? Pinehurst. Pinehurst. And which course would you go to? The one that just had the tour championship, number two, mm-hmm. right? What would you find there? You would find grass-faced flat sand bunkers that were developed by Henson Maples six months after Ross died. You would find greens that were shrunken, reduced in size and in shape by Diamond Head, by Diamond Head workers on bulldozers in the early 70s trying to get new bunkers up as close as possible to the green putting services as much as possible to make it as challenging as possible to create a La Costa, literally. But no one knew that. No one knew any of that because that information was buried somewhere either inside the archives or not yet even reaching the archives yet. So that must be Don Ross. That's what Don Ross is all about. Here's his most famous golf course outside of Florida. Because I ask the Florida people this question, they always say Seminole. That's another story. (laughs) But, you know, so people did that. And still people sometimes do that today. And I think I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that Court Crenshaw recognized that, hey, a lot of these bunkers are grass face, are, are not grass face. They're flat, uh, they're sand flat bunkers. So the bunker at number two has never looked better since before Ross was around. You know, there's a drawing that I'm, I, I'm guessing a lot of people are know, know about and see. Uh, it's called Various Types of Mounds and Bunkers by Donald J. Ross. And he, and, he, and he has section lines of four different bunker types. And in three of those four bunkers, you can see little dots where the sand is on the faces. And from an architecture standpoint, from an architectural drafting standpoint, you know because you learned this in school that those dots mean sand. So there's 75% of the, of the bunkers that he's drawing have flash sand. There's great quotes from him how sand should be liberally, liberally spread along the faces of these mounds. Well, that doesn't mean grass face, you know? So we're so far off topic now, but just rambling <laughs> on. That's what this is that's, for, yeah. That's, thank God, yeah. But that's, 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 the, that's the poop. That's the scoop right there, Yeah. you know? And thank God we're finally getting there. But that's another thing that was really difficult. When, you know, when we first did Raleigh Country Club, people would say, whoa, that's not Ross, you know? We're working at Country Club Asheville. And um, oh, I've been getting hammered at Asheville, but they haven't actually seen the work. And and these are and some of the people are, are Ross so-called aficionados, but they haven't seen the work and they have no idea of what's there. I mean, some of the people are saying I've defaced greens, yet the reality is we went down, found the existing the original putting surface, knowing that the general manager defaced the greens back in the sixties. We went in about four or five holes. We were able to discover, to dig down and find the actual putting surface. And we just peeled the black layer, which was the grass, off and cleaned it up and put new mix in, or not even put new mix in, and just boom. And it's about as authentic as possible. But what happens is people don't know the story. You know, you never ever in golf architecture say never or always. Those are two words that should never be said by anyone because it's never right and it's always wrong. All right. Well, as we as we start to close this down, I'll ask you another another question. Where there's, it's not going to be always or never. But I don't want to open a can of worms on this one. But what is your viewpoint on bunker liners? Oh, bunker liners. 
you know, I, if I tell you the truth, I might not get the job because that happens. That's happened to me before. Oh, I know. The truth is there is no silver bullet. And no matter what you do, you're going to have to rebuild your bunkers at some point. It's just a matter when you want to. And bunker liners just prolong the inevitable in that regard. Do they make daily maintenance easier and better? Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, we're using, you know, Better Billy Bunker up in Tanglewood right now. And if it wasn't for bunker liners like Better Billy Bunker or Capillary Concrete or whatever, we would really be screwing Forsyth County by creating the bunker phases that we're creating. Um, but that's the only way we could we could do Robert Trent Jones. And they got six inches of rain from Hurricane Florence and no damage at all. So in that regard, I like liners. Um, but I, I just, uh, you know, it goes back to before you start talking about liners, it's how many bunkers do you have? Where are your bunkers located? How are they actually constructed? You know, we go into renovation, of course. There's a lot of bunkers are built where water can get in very easily. So we got to fix that. You know, we also got to think about maybe not putting bunkers behind greens on hillsides because water's coming down the hill. So when I talk about minimizing my bunkers, as boring as it may be, I may not put many bunkers or any bunkers on hillsides behind greens. I've done it before. I really try hard not to do it now, but it's where you locate those bunkers as far as the bunker renovation goes. So um, I, I, I think on a day-to-day -day basis, it helps with maintenance without a doubt. But I think as far as prolonging a renovation or two, I'm not sure it really prolongs a renovation. And it goes back to setting standards even though I just talked about Tanglewood, it sets standards, it sets people up for failure who can't afford it. And it's, and it raises the bar higher for perfect conditions. And that's what we need to get away from. You know, I mean, uh, I was just at a course of mine in, in Atlanta Creekside over the weekend, hadn't been there in a long time. And it's in dire need of a bunker renovation. You know, there's original bunkers. Nobody's touched those bunkers um, and it needs new sand, but they're functional. The, the golf course is operating. The golf course is, was busy that day, you know, but they've gone 20 years without a bunker renovation. You don't need to do bunker renovations every seven, eight years. And you may not necessarily, if you can't afford it, you, you shouldn't be doing getting into it. So roundabout way, bunkers are good. Bunker liners are good, but they're not a be all end all. The danger though is also, like you just said, it's, it's an added, it's, a, it's an expensive uh, line item. And if, if clubs start doing it, then the next club down the street who wants to renovate their course, even though they may not need it across the course, they're going to want it bunker liners just because everybody else does. It's like green speeds. You know, you don't want to be the viewed as the course that doesn't have the bunker liner. Right. It's just like green speeds. It's just like, let's put wire grass everywhere, you know, or, or out of, you know, you, you know, make things look like a Scottish links course, you know? Nothing worse than the Scottish Links course off I-75 between Atlanta and Macon. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to ask you the I'll ask you the standard question uh, at the end of these shows. What's the best modern course you've seen, or that you the modern course that you like the best per your tastes? So <clears throat> that's a tough one for me because. If I go somewhere and I have a choice between going to see a modern course or a golden age course, I'm going to the golden age course probably 10 times out of 10. 
nothing against the modern course, but what you, you said to my taste. So, so I haven't really played many golf courses built in the last 25 years. I've seen some, I've been to, I've, I've been to string song, um, didn't play, but I've been to see the first two courses of string song. I've been to Bandon when I was, when I was at Bandon, the stakes were the center stakes were in the ground at old McDonald's. So there are only three courses there, you know, I played dormy club. Um, you know, I'll tell you, um, I like Bandon Trails a lot. Pacific Dunes is great, of course. Bandon is great, too. But I like Bandon Trails a lot. Um, and I'm a core Crenshaw fan. I like them as, you know, as people, and I like what they do design-wise. So Bandon Trails, um, I'll tell you what I like is the Die Course at Colleton River in Hilton Head. Uh, it's been a long time since I've been there, but it's a pretty cool golf course. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a 16th hole part five don't try this at home but he's stuck a pot bunker in the third in the back of the third piece so people on the back you can see it 40 yards in front of them that's pretty <laughs> cool but there's a lot of other really cool stuff there um i like tpc sawgrass and i haven't played there in 25 years but i didn't think i'd like it when i went to play it and i loved it if you not from seven thousand yards but from 63 6400 yards or 65 for me it's it's a fun golf course or it was back then so um so there's there's a couple is that um no those are good those are good i love i love uh, the stadium course as well it's one of my favorites if someone's coming to pinehurst area the pinehurst area and they can't get on number two where where would you send them um i would go play pine needles and mid pines in southern pines pine needles and mid pines because the greens are more raw than southern pines uh, but southern pines because it's a great piece of property Agreed. Uh, uh, last last question. Uh, why you're a New York guy? Why Georgia? You went to the University of Georgia. You're a bulldog. What what the hell's going on there? Real simple. When I was 15, I want to probably covered this. I wanted to be a golf course architect. When I was 15, and I decided that the green landscape architecture was the best way to go. And at the time, the University of Georgia had the best landscape architecture program in America, like today, where they have the best football team in America. <clears throat> How about that for being a biased Georgia Bulldog? Is, is now when you want to talk about last year's uh, national championship? Yeah, I know. I said best, but you know, I really mean second best. So <laughs> that's okay. Second best works for right now. It remains to be seen. That's right. They I mean, look good. Hey, What's not to like? Now, I, I, now this is where I diverge from being a typical Georgia Bulldog fan. I don't care about anything other than let's just beat Tennessee and we'll worry about everything else later. Like my son showed me how they, they jumped Clemson from three to two. So it doesn't matter. All just like Al Davis said, just keep winning, baby. That's just all that matters. Yeah. yeah. An undefeated Georgia team will play for the national championship. Oh, yeah. And if I they think that's a pretty safe bet. And, and we were six inches away from a national championship because when Tua came in in the championship game, three and out, and then he came back in. And we got two, we got him twice and it was third and long and he was just got out of the grasp of somebody and made a pass and got a first down. And then the rest is Alabama history. Oh yeah, I know. I know. Alabama looks pretty, pretty good though too. Yeah. And I don't know if we'll beat him or not, but like I said, just beat Tennessee. It's all that matters. Yeah. It shouldn't be too hard. Sorry. Sorry. Volunteer fans. I know there's a few of you out there, but (laughs) you got a ways to go. But don't say that. Don't jinx Georgia. 
you know, you never know. I have no power over that. They're, they'll be fine. <laughs> hey, Richard, yeah. this was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. That was a good uh, long talk. Hope I didn't make you mad. <laughs> Hope, uh... <laughs> oh, no, no, not at all. Okay. I mean, I think Georgia can win. No problem. Uh, I'm a, hey, I'm, I'm surrounded by Georgia fans. I, I live here and uh, all my friends in this city are Georgia fans. So I'm, I'm on board. Good, good. Glad to hear it. Okay. Keep doing what you're doing. Much success. Uh, it's been good getting to know you and get to, good to talk to you today. I'll have a beer next time I'm in Atlanta. I will. I will carve out time and, and push uh, push everything else aside. <laughs> Thanks, Derek. All right. Awesome. That was Richard Mandel. And in case you hadn't heard, Georgia did defeat Tennessee, dispatched of them rather easily. And now Richard uh, can move on to thinking about next week's game. A <laughs> uh, quick public service announcement. Uh, if you were enjoying... The podcast. I'd really appreciate it if you'd take a second to go to iTunes and give the show a star rating, or better yet, tell somebody else about it. Uh, spread the word. And let's get some more people listening to the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm on Instagram and Twitter. You can find me there and give me follows at Feed the Ball. That was a pretty long episode, so I won't take up too much more of your time here. We did, as typically we do on the show, uh, talk a lot about public golf, where golf goes from here. And Richard and I, uh, you know, I think we we share the same sentiment. Public golf is important as best we can, as best as possible. We need to find ways to expand uh, public golf, municipal golf, and just find ways to present the game in its most pure, natural form, without adornment. And just people, if, if you expose people to golf, if you can get them on the golf course, they'll fall in love with golf. Deep down, they don't need all the accessories, all the layers. They don't need big clubhouses. They don't need GPS systems or radios in their carts. They don't need uh, a kid at the curb to take your bag out of your trunk. We built so many bad golf courses for so many years. It They detracted from the enjoyment of the game. Nobody wants to see their golf balls landing in lakes. Nobody wants to search for lost balls. Nobody wants to have a five and a half hour round. Nobody wants to overpay for a round of golf. Nobody wants to find themselves on the seventh hole two miles from the clubhouse. And the solution to that is to not build more into golf. The solution is to take more things away from golf and golf courses in particular. Strip it down. Just present the holes. Mow the rough. Mow the areas around the greens. Give people room to play. Give them an environment that feels natural and hopefully encourage them to get out and walk. People will fall in love with golf. That's, that's not the problem. The problem is not the game. As Mike Young, another guest on this show, always says, the problem is not the game. The game of golf is healthy. The business of golf may not be healthy. And I truly believe to help the business of golf, you have to emphasize the game of golf, not the other way around. Yeah, And it's so sad to me that in all of the discussion about what can be done to help the game and help grow golf, etc., and all that BS, so little faith is put in the game itself, in the game of golf. So enough rambling. Thank you for joining. Thanks, Richard Mandel, for being a guest this week. Go out, try to walk 18, try to walk 9, support your local course, support your pu- local public course. Keep tuning into this podcast. I've got more shows coming up. Thanks to the Sundogs. And until we do this again next time, adios. Adios.